Welcome to the Real Life Church podcast channel. My name is Michael Bame. I am the pastor here, and Real Life Church is all about connecting Jesus to real lives. Uh, you can find out more about us at reallifecov.com. All right. Good morning. As Michael said, my name's Bob, and I have the privilege of continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. Now, I'm going to be covering chapter 4 this morning, and I just want to give you a quick recap of what we talked about in chapters 1 through 3. So, as Michael said, Mark Willock came up and led us in chapter 1, and that was really talking about God's plan and how our daily walk fits into God's plan. And then Michael gave us a recap of chapters 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, he talked about a new people. And this was the Jews and the other nations around them learning to set aside their differences and work together to build God's church and grow and expand God's church as much as they could. In chapter 3, Michael talked about the purpose behind God's plan, the plan that Mark talked about in chapter 1, how God wants to take this new people that he put together in chapter 2 and all of the rich variety of these people from the many nations that make up the Christian belief to display his wisdom, not only to earth, but to heaven as well. So I, I love the analogy that Michael used of a house being on a market and a family saying, oh, we should buy that house and how we want to do the same kind of thing with God where we want to make our heart, put it on the market and make it available to God for him to move in and turn it into his home, to bring the personality and the personalization of it to make it a home for God to live. Each of us has our own walk. Now, I don't mean, you know, I walk like this or I walk like this or any of those kinds of things. I mean, it's our own identity. It's the way that we deal with our lives. It's the experiences we've had throughout our lives. Now, today... We're going to start a focus on action. So uh, I titled this A Call to Action for Ephesians 4. In chapters 1 through 3, we talked about God's plan and how he put these people together and what the purpose of the plan is. Now Paul is going to start giving us some real practical applications for how we can put this plan into action in our lives. So I want to emphasize to you you know, while I'm going to talk a lot about actions and conversion and those things, it is not our behavior that drives God to love us. Rather, it's God's love that drives us to change our behavior. So let me say that again so it sinks in. It's not our behavior that drives God to love us. Rather, it's God's love that drives us to change in our behavior. So in Romans Chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, it says, Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we are still sinners. Our goal should be to have God's love grow in us so that we become more like Jesus and less like me, with his behavior changes driven by the growth in God's love. 
If you haven't made a decision to follow Christ yet, I want you to know that God loves you as you are right now. And I invite you to join this journey in becoming part of the body of Christ. So now it's time to get to work and understand our part to play. What we want to do is we want to unwrap the gifts and put them to use that were talked about in chapters 1 through 3. So for you who don't know me or much about me, I grew up in a large family. I have nine siblings. So we had 12 people in our household. And my mom very quickly realized that she needed to enlist some help in order to be able to make the household actually work and function. So the age ranges from youngest to oldest was 17 years. So every 1.7 years, boom, 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 there's a kid, okay, roughly. Um, So we had a wide variety of ages and capabilities for my mom to try to develop um, helpers with. So she developed this chore chart. And the chore chart was typically a weekly kind of thing that you had to do. So she listed the seven days of the week, and she listed all the activities on the side. And I'll I'll give you a flavor of the activities. Um, Get cereal boxes and bowls out for breakfast. Load the dishwasher from the breakfast dishes. Set the table for dinner. Laundry. Mow lawn. Sidewalk shoveling. You know, she had a wide variety of things, and it changed depending upon the season. And she set it up so that it was um, age and capability appropriate for whoever got assigned the task. Then she or older siblings would do instruction or teaching on how to do the task to make sure you did it right. And we were all expected to get our task completed by the end of the day, check mark basically by your name by the end of the day. And usually my mom or one of the older siblings would check our work to make sure we had done it the right way. Because mom knew that if we started injecting our individuality into how we did things, um, chaos would ensue. And she would have to do everything all over again. So needless to say, variation to the standard was not widely accepted. Now, here is an example of my mother's thought process. Imagine doing laundry for two people relatively straightforward, maybe four or five loads a week of clothes that you would go through. Now multiply that by six. So we did laundry every day. And because we had seven girls and three boys in the family, there were lots of similar clothing. So trying to figure out whose is what was a chore. So my mom said, okay, I'm going to pick a color of thread for each child I am going to darn a mark in each one of those pieces of clothing. So when you fold it, color green, that's Bob's. Pink, that's Judy's. You know, and you knew which drawer to fold it and put it into so it could go up to that bedroom to be put away. My mom was that organized. Um, so you're wondering, what in the world does this story have to do with the Bible? Well, let, let me unpack it for you so you can understand a little bit of what I'm talking about and how it relates. So we're going to start right with verse 1. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. So 
Paul, again, mentions like he did in the other three letters, I'm in prison. Still, wow, last time you wrote to us, you were in prison too. Good, I think. But Paul didn't look at prison as being something that was restrictive to him. I think he used it as an ability to be able to focus on things and be able to generate these letters of correction and encouragement to the different churches. Now, Paul's imprisonment wasn't always in chains and behind bars. He was sometimes confined to houses, but he had guards there. But they allowed him to have visitors. So he was able to get updates from people who were traveling through on how's the church in Corinth doing or the church in Ephesus or the church in Philippi. And he would get these updates from people and then he would ponder, okay, what do I need to say to them to to help them grow, to correct the things that are going wrong, and to be able to encourage them. And, and that's where these letters came from, his ability to be able to do that. So this calling by God is a gift. It's an exceptional gift. None of us are worthy of this calling. We all have flaws, we all have imperfections, yet God is still calling us to be part of his body. This is like being selected to play on the high school varsity team as a fourth grader. You're, you're ill-prepared. You, you, you're intimidated. You don't really know how to approach this. But God is there with us, walking through us with everything. And we shouldn't dishonor or ignore this calling from God because he wants us to be part of this body. And he knows that we have an integral part to play within this body. So as Mark said in chapter 1, we want you to bring your superpower, whatever that is, and we want you to bring it to church and utilize it here and with others in the community as we grow as a body of Christ. So what does being worthy or living a worthy life look like? Well, Paul explains that a little bit further in verses 2 and 3. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Michael talked about this some in his discussions of chapter 2 and chapter 3. How do we bring these people from many different nations, many different beliefs together? How do we get them to unite and work together peacefully setting aside their differences. Paul is saying that your walk needs to be worthy of your calling. We're being called to be part of a united and growing body of Christ. Sometimes you're not aware of how your walk with Christ um, is actually going, what, how you're actually reflecting to others. How is your walk displaying your unique identity as part of the body of Christ. Are you demonstrating all of the qualities in verses 2 and 3? Gentleness, humbleness, patience. With your spouses, are you forgiving each other's faults? Are you working together peacefully as a united body? I think that that's the goal. That's how Paul and Christ would like us to live as these new people. And Ephesians 4 through 6 explains this a little bit further. There's one body, one spirit, 
just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. This is a description of our new family. I didn't count the number of ones in there, but I bet there are seven or eight. And normally when the Bible repeats a word, you want to dig in a little bit further to understand why that word is so important. This is the desire of Christ, to have one body of believers worshiping one God who created and is in all things. If God is in all things, how did he set us apart from the rest of the creations that he made? Paul gives us that answer in verse 7. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. What do you think that special gift is? Is he talking about spiritual gifts here? You know, the things where we can prophesy and we can um, heal people and we can teach people and we can lead people? Let's take a look. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you cannot take credit for it. It is a gift from God. So that is the gift that Paul is talking about. It is grace. And what exactly is grace? If you look it up in the dictionary, I think you'll find something like unmerited favor. It's something that you get that you don't deserve and you don't understand why you get it. We have this undeserved gift of salvation through God and through the generosity of Jesus. Now, what is that generosity? Well, Michael has said many times in his Old Testament sermons that when sin occurs, sacrifice is required. That sacrifice was typically an animal, an ox, a bull, a lamb, a bird. You know, something had to die to atone for the sins of men. And it was typically an animal that died for the mistakes that men made. Well, when Jesus came back to earth, he became that sacrifice for all of eternity. Jesus' death on the cross and shedding his blood and his resurrection took the place of all of those animal sacrifices forever. So Jesus is the atonement from all of our sins all the way back from 2,000 years ago until he comes back again here on earth. So grace is a gift, and it's a gift from God. But it's also something that we can give. It's something we can give to ourselves and to others. What do I mean give grace to yourself? We have to accept the imperfections that we have. And we have to live with them because God loves us as if we were per perfect in spite of all of the flaws that we have. And grace to others might look like smiling at someone when you're walking down the sidewalk, even if you don't know them. It might be more patience in traffic. Or it could be talking in a more gentle tone to someone when you're, when you're talking with them. There are many ways to give grace to others 
And we should be as generous with the grace that we give as God is generous with the grace that he gives us. Are we the only ones that received a special gift from God? I think verses 11 through 13 help us understand that a little bit more. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. So, okay, yep, he gave it to us as individuals for grace, but he also gave gifts to the church, to the entire body. And those gifts were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So it's not very often that I look at Michael as a gift. I mean, there are times when I do, but now Paul tells me that I should always look at Michael as a gift, as we should with the children's ministry, as we should with the people who clean the church, as we should with the people who lead worship. You know, all of those things are things that God has given us as a gift to help us be equipped to do his work. So what are some of the ways that they do that? They equip us by giving sermons, by worship music like Amanda did today, by Bible studies that are being led, by helping us to get involved in the community, by mission work. There are so many ways that we can be equipped to be doing the work of God and to be actively doing our part with the body of Christ. So, this, these gifts are gifts that Michael also talked about in chapter 2 and 3. And it is this body, this house of God, that, we are, that God is giving the gifts to. So how do, how do they go about equipping God's people? Like I said, sermons, messages, worship music, all of those things. And what is the goal of all that? It is to continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So remember my mom's chart chart and variation not being good? That was her standard, very similar to what the standard is that the church is trying to equip us to work to. How will we know when we're properly equipped? What will tell us that? Verse 14 gives us a hint, and it kind of talks about what we will no longer be as opposed to what we will be. But then we will no longer be immature like children. So I had this game I used to play with our children when we were making supper. I'd ask them, what do you want to have for a vegetable tonight? Do you want to have peas or corn? And inevitably, they would always choose the last thing they heard, corn. So I'd switch it around, corn or peas? Peas. And we could go on for hours doing that. And, and they would finally say, Dad, vegetables. We don't care, just vegetables. Now, I probably was violating one of the rules that Paul talks about in chapter 5, something about fathers don't grieve your children. Um, but I didn't realize or recognize that at the time, so I think I can be absolved of that. Then Paul says, we won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Now, for me, this is an analogy that speaks very loudly. Being tossed about by every wind. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar or get out on a lake or body of water very often in a boat, 
but I do a lot of fishing. We do a lot of pontooning and other kinds of things. And I want to tell you about an event or I guess an experience of being tossed about. We used to go up to Canada every year to go fishing and we would go to a river system um, that had a dam on one end and 50 miles later it had another dam and we would fish between those two dams. And one year when we went up, we needed to catch, oh, probably another half a dozen or so walleyes in order to be able to fill out our limits to be able to bring fish back to our families when we left. So on the last day, we went to our honey hole, the spot where we knew we could catch lots of fish, and it was 20 miles from camp. We left camp that morning, bright blue skies, glass, shimmering water. We could go out at 35, 40 miles an hour, all the way out, make it there very quickly. Well, we fished for mm, seven or eight hours. And over that time, we noticed, gosh, there's more clouds that are coming in. Boy, the wind seems to be picking up. And when we left out of the bay to head back to camp, we turned the corner and we found that there were three or four foot waves that we were going to be fighting against for 20 miles back to the camp. Now, when you're going with the waves or against the waves, that's relatively straightforward and easy because you can get the speed of the boat to match the waves and you can kind of skip across the tops of the waves. Unfortunately for us, the wind was blowing from the side. So we were fighting cross waves the entire way home. Now, my father-in-law was along on this trip and he was pretty particular about wanting to get rid of all of the gas out of the tank in his boat before we left because he didn't want to have that much weight on the trailer going back across all the gravel roads we had to go on. So he neglected to put gas into his boat that morning. But he did take an extra six-gallon can of gas and had it in the back of his boat. So we're fighting these waves, and you're going like this the whole way because the waves are hitting you and rocking you back and forth. And we got about halfway back, and we turned around and noticed my father-in-law's boat wasn't moving. He ran out of gas. So we turn around and we go back, and here he is rocking back and forth with the waves pushing the boat. They're pushing him towards the shoreline, which is full of rocks, and he's trying to take the spout off of this gas can and put the funnel on and be able to get it into a hole that's about three inches in diameter while he's going like this with the waves. And he doesn't want to spill gas in his boat because it will smell. So imagine that that was not a very easy task to do. And, you know, when you're looking down, when you're in weather like that, you tend to get confused, disoriented, and maybe even a little bit seasick. So luckily, he was able to get gas in the tank, get the boat restarted. We made it back to camp safely. But he said, boy, I'll never do that again. And we said, thank you. And, and we moved on. So um, being blown about by every new wind, that, that is something that is very, very vivid memories for me. Um, but he also says, we'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Are we ever exposed to anything like that? Does anybody ever watch TV? Now, I know sometimes you can, you can flip through, the go past the commercials if you, if you record it, 
then you can just skip through the commercials. But we are exposed to so much stuff that we can't live without or that our life is incomplete if we don't have it or our neighbors are going to get it first and we'll have to be envious of them. Same thing with internet ads. Same thing with posts on Facebook and Instagram. Oh, I got done cleaning my house today. It looks so wonderful. Okay. What did it look like before? Can you show us that picture? Well, no, because I want to make sure, I want my life to be perfect for people. And, you know, it is clever and it does sound like the truth, but it, it can be very, very misleading. So, in verses 15 and 16, Paul gives us now an example of what it will look like instead of what it won't look like. So, instead it says, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now, you'll have to forgive me. I have to be able to read this, and I don't have my reading glasses on. So I want to read you a quote from Sister Teresa of Avila. She said, Christ has no body here on earth but yours, no hands but yours, and no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is going to go about doing good, and yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. I just love this analogy of the body and how all of us are playing a part in this body. But it's important for us to understand our identity in Christ so that we know what our role is in this body. We're each made to perform a specific role, just like the parts of the body. The eye can't do what the hand can do. The foot can't do what the knee can do. All of these parts have to work together in conjunction with each other. But if we spend our time either comparing ourselves to or competing with another part of the body, then we're not contributing very effectively to the workings of the body. We need to understand our own identity and how we need to contribute to this body, the church. So become part of this body and grow with it. Walk away from your old ways, the old you, and let God change you into who he wants you to be. Changing your walk, your habits, those things permanently is hard. It's very hard work because the old walk is part of who we are. It's the way we've learned to react. It's the responses that are, are almost, we don't even think about them, we just give them. And I want to emphasize that in developing our new walk, our new identity, it's a process. It's not a light switch where you turn it on or turn it off. It's not a snap of your fingers and you go from being old to new. It's something that you have to put conscious thought into every hour of every day. But God is walking beside you through this whole process and he is giving you encouragement and he's helping you to, to figure out who you are and how you need to contribute to this. There are also plenty of other Christians who are going through a similar walk who would be happy to come alongside you and help you. 
When our identity changes, our walk must change too. But under pressure, we'll often revert to our old ways because it's easier to deal with things in our old ways. We'll make mistakes and we'll backslide into our old habits. But that doesn't mean that God loves you any less. He loved us when we were sinners. So he understands the imperfections of us and knows that we are far from perfect. But he still wants us to be part of this body. So next, Paul transitions into giving directions on how we are to live our lives. I call them practical applications. In verse 17, he says, With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Paul says it's no longer acceptable to walk the old way. That way of walking is no longer appropriate for the identity that God has given to his people. It's a way of darkness. It's a way of closed minds and hardened hearts, all of which are contrary to what we were taught about, the gifts that God gives us in chapters 1 through 3. We are now in Christ's body, in his family, and we have to walk appropriately. Our lives must change to show that the old self is gone, our minds are changed, and the new identity is clear to us. So how do we go about this? What is the process that we follow? Paul describes it in verses 23 through 23. Throw off your own old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. So let me just give you, a, I think Amanda called it in the first service, vivid example of what he's talking about here. Imagine you're out in the yard, it's 90 degrees, you've been mowing lawn or planting garden or doing some kind of work out there. You come back into the house and you're hot and you're sweaty and you just want to take a shower and cool off and feel refreshed. So you strip off those old clothes and you throw them on the bathroom floor and you take a shower or a bath and you come out and you're all refreshed. Do you put those old, dirty, sweaty clothes back on again? No. I, I don't think you'd want to do that. Um, you've just cleaned yourself up. you just made yourself feel comfortable and then you're going to go back into what you were wearing. That, that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. That... Going back to your old ways is like putting on those dirty, smelly, sweaty clothes after God has cleaned you and perfected you. So that's not something that you want to do. Now, next he says, in, uh, oh, <clears throat> which is corrupted by lust and deception. Your old way of life is corrupted by lust and deception. So how are we being deceived by our desires? Some of you are going to find this really hard to believe, but occasionally my wife, Lan, and I have disagreements. Um, I tend to be a little bit strong-willed. Um, Lana tends to be more strong-willed than I am. Um, and we both think we're right all the time. So disagreements happen. And when they happen, I tend to either get angry or defensive or I just stop talking. I just walk away and say, I'm not going to deal with this right now. So that's my old self. So what I need to do is ask myself, what is my real desire for the outcome of this interaction with Lana? 
And if I'm honest with myself, it's I want to be right, I want to prove her wrong, or I want, what's the last one? There it is, okay. Or I want to, that's it. I think those are the only two. Never mind, I can't read my notes. Um, So are those old walk or new walk ways? Old, so it's the old walk for sure, right? So that's the mindset of the old walk. I want to be right, I want to be in control, I want to prove her wrong, those are the things. So what should my real desire be? I think it's to accept Lana in spite of our differences, just like God does for us. So the question I have to ask myself is, how do I go about things in a new walk manner to allow us to love and accept each other instead of trying to compete with or change each other? Now he goes on in verse 23, and he says, Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. In our former way of life, our hearts went our own way. Once we say yes to Jesus, we must begin the process of changing our mindset, our emotions, and our attitudes to align with his desire for us. But notice in verse 23 where it says, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. This is not a journey you're going on alone. You've invited God to be in your house to make it into his home, and he is working inside of you to try to change you. Your responsibility is to try to align your actions that set up and enable God to do that transformation to you. So you're not doing this on your own. You can't change yourself all on your own. You have to rely on God for help for that. Paul goes on to give us 11 different commands in verses 25 through 32. And basically, they are very detailed instructions on how to go about making this change. Now, I'm not going to read them all to you, but they are very important. So I would encourage you chapter 4 and pay attention to 25 through 32. As an engineer, the way I look at those are detailed step instructions. We used to have these at work. Now, I worked in manufacturing, and we had an assembly line process. And people worked on the assembly line for 8 to 10 hours a day. And we didn't want them sitting in the same chair doing the same activity for 40 hours a week or even 8 hours a day. So, we set up a job rotation for people to move along the assembly line to all the different workstations throughout the day. Now, because they weren't doing them all the time, they sometimes forgot how to do things or weren't familiar with it. So in front of them, we had a picture of detailed step instructions of how to do this particular assembly step. And it helped them to make sure that they did it the correct way. Again, like my mom's chore chart, if they added in some individuality or some innovation, it would usually lead to a quality problem that we had to go back and correct at a later time. So we didn't encourage them to you know, improvise, follow what it says, and you'll get it right every time if you do that. So that sounds very similar to my mom's chore chart growing up. So I hope I tied the first story all the way back throughout the thing. Now, what would I like you to take away from this message? 
What I'd like you to do is figure out how to take an inventory of your walk every day as you're going through your daily prayers. And if you don't do daily prayers, I would encourage you to start them. I think it's a great way to stay connected and to understand where you are in your relationship with God. So in that daily prayer session, I want you to look at one area where you have grown as a Jesus follower. And when you pray, thank God for all the growth that you've experienced in that area. Then I'd like you to look at one area where you're struggling as a Jesus follower, because we all have those areas. And I want you to pray and ask God to help you to continue to grow in that area and be able to correct those issues. Now, if you want to take it a step further, you can talk to your spouse or a trusted friend, and you can tell them about the area that you're struggling and ask them to pray for you. But you can also give them permission to ask you whenever they see you, how are you doing with this? And hold you accountable so that you can continue to grow in that relationship with God. So, remember, it's not our behavior that drives God to love us. Rather, it's God's love that drives us to change our behavior. So, in order for God to be able to begin his good work in us, we have to agree to let him in. He's got to be able to make that home in our hearts. And then the process can begin to become more like Jesus and less like me. Hey there, hope you enjoyed the sermon today. We love connecting Jesus' life with other people's lives and hope we were able to do that with you today. If you'd like to know more about us here at Real Life Church, please check us out at reallifecove.com. Thanks for listening.